Hello, everybody, and welcome to What's the Story podcast, episode 266. Uh, we're seven years doing this, so, uh, you know, you'd think by now we'd have a better intro, but sure, look, here we are. My name is Danny Murray. And I'm Graham Merrigan. Mero, how are you keeping my friend? I'm very good. Very, very good. Thank you. Excellent. I've been made all the better by our guest this week, because every time we have him on, I end up leaving a little bit more intelligent. And Absolutely, a and, a, and a very in-demand guest because we've tried to get him back uh, since probably around the start of March, but he's far too busy um, <laughs> yeah. for his, his new TV uh, full-time gig, I suppose. Well, not yeah, full-time. well, Danny, Danny won the ratings war, you know? <laughs> <laughs> only, only marginally, on penalties, I think it was, man. on penalties. And that is the voice of our um, one of our favourite guests. We always like to get him on every five or six months. Social historian and just all around sound human being, Donald Fallon. How are you guys? <laughs> How are you? Putting a lot of faith in, in the broadband here in, in Dublin. Hey, but we'll get through it. You will moved. Indeed, man. <laughs> You've moved, have you? You've moved from Kimmage? Yeah, well, I loved Kimmage. Uh, I love being surrounded by millions of Sean Grover's fans, Graham, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the four provinces up there. Sorry, that was my sound. The four provinces seems to be New Shamrock Rovers' pub of choice. That's right. Dublin. Yeah. Uh, I would say that's in Crumlin. The estate agents would say that's in Kimmage as well. Everything's in Kimmage now, apparently. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. As happened, I suppose, to a lot of people, just like the landlord sold up, it was time to move, and I was on the bounce around Dublin. So five months later, uh, six months later, I found a place in Black Pits, which is uh, right by St. Patrick's Cathedral. Really nice place. Oh, uh, nice to be so close to town, kind of in town actually. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say that's, that's, that's right in the heart of it, really. Yeah, it's mad. Yeah, you say there's loads of history around you now again. Yeah, it's all the pubs too. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the balcony, you can see the, the spire of uh, Patrick's Cathedral, which is really nice. Yeah. So yeah, it's nice to be amidst the city, isn't it? And one thing I won't miss is the traffic on the Lower Kimmage Road. But yeah, it was a great place to live for so long. Kimmage really enjoyed the buzz uh, of the area. And uh, yeah, plenty of green on my shirts. Lovely. Yeah. You're on yeah. TV now, Donald. You can always spot the gentrifiers, Graham. They were the vegetarians in the red and black shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, Donald, you, as, as Mero said, you're, you're a busy, busy man these days. Obviously, Three Castles are born and goes from strength to strength. And every time you release new episodes, it gets better and better. And um, the, the newer series you've, you've just started, I think Moving House probably. Or that, that played a part in you kind of taking a break from for yeah. a couple of weeks, but you're back in action now. Yeah, it really doesn't help uh, moving back into your parents' house with your partner living on a inflatable bed, the front room. The <laughs> 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 childhood bedroom just won't do. And uh, yeah, trying to record a podcast the whole uh, new baby next door, beautiful bouncing new baby in the neighbor's house. And a 15-year-old dog with my parents, so it just wasn't working. I was going to ask, the dog is still going strong. Live, she's 15, but, you know, you, you've probably heard on CNBC this week that uh, cryptocurrencies died of debt. <laughs> one, of the, one of the funny things is that Dogecoin, that dog, you know, remember yeah. the Doge meme? Yeah. yeah. That dog's still alive. <laughs> oh, way. <laughs> that dog's like 17 and blind over in Japan. So, jeez. Oh, Dogs can go on for a long, long time. And yeah, Molly's still in the game at, at 15. Uh, mentally, I don't think she's all there. I think she's lost her mind, but physically, <laughs> still, still jumping around. So she wasn't uh, supportive of my podcast efforts. Yeah. <laughs> did, did she like having you and your lovely, lovely fiancé around? Yeah, and uh, that's the thing. You know, they, 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 the loyalty of a dog, even, even when they're starting to lose their marbles at that age, like 
this is a total mutt, so they go on forever. Mm. They kind of have the best of what I remember the vet said. It's a long time since there was paperwork in that family. That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> like everything that was everything that was in the pound is there. But uh, they go on forever months. And mm. people pay thousands of euros for these pure breed dogs that are gone at six or seven years of age. You know, you yeah. walk into Dogs Trust and find the strangest looking dog there and you'll have it forever. But uh, it was nice to be around her. Yeah, it was nice because, you know, it's the, swan, it's the swan song years of her life. So it was cool to be. It's cool to be with her. Uh, absolutely, man. There was, um, there's, you know, the way um, the president's dogs mm. would, would history t- tell us that presidents have always had dogs? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the Oris is such a kind of strange place and quite a lonely place that people have always tended to have pets in it. There's a dog buried in the grounds of the Oris, uh, but it predates a president. I think it might have been like, uh, uh, some, someone, someone from the colonial service in days gone by, but there is a dog buried in the grounds of Arsenitron. No way. Like, I've got relatives in Glasnevin and unmarked graves, and some fucking dog is a grave in the Phoenix Park. <laughs> <laughs> I find that amazing. But there is a dog buried up there, yeah. Uh, I suppose, like, I remember years ago reading an interview with May Robinson's son. He was kind of saying, whenever you ordered a pizza, they would laugh at you on the phone. Mm. And say fuck off, no way. You know, you know, you'd, you'd say Oris and Uchtaran, and they say no, it's not. <laughs> they just hang up. I think you're franking them. So I think there's a bit, there's a degree of that, isn't there? If you live in, if you live in Oris and Uchtaran, it's a big house, but it probably gets lonely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it would be terrible if you know, even ordering on just eat. Yeah, it's getting cancelled, isn't it? The second the chipper sees that, they're like, yeah, now butter sausage going to the artist on Uchtaran today, boys, get out of it. I'd say Michael D does eat a butter sausage and chips, curry sauce. I'd say, I'd say he's a curry sauce. Definitely. Should yeah, a man goes to an ATM. This is yeah. it. Um, but yeah, all, the some... league, all the good League of Ireland cuisine, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that, yeah. there is something. Scran. That That's... that word that, that word scran. Graham. Where does that, that that is that is that an influence from across the water? I'm, I'm not sure. There's a Twitter um, Twitter page called Footy Scran, and um, Rovers uh, were featured on it recently. Actually, Dundalk were re- uh, featured on it recently when someone asked for her. Uh, cheese chips and they got a bag yes. of chips uh. and two slices of easy singles in the bag so uh, it's it's a very popular page and uh, scran as it's called f- food that you get at football matches are featured from all over the world interesting I'm yeah. ne- I just, I'm, I've never heard the word before until that page appeared and it was actually the very bag of chips with easy singles you, you mentioned oh it's very funny come here Donald um as Danny was saying about the podcast, he obviously took a break with moving and it's gone from strength to strength. Are, are, you, are you running out of topics yet or is there just so much history in, in, in Dublin that um, you can go on forever? That's a very good question. Like, I began doing a weekly history thing on News Talk in 2013, right? Hidden histories, I love it. With, uh, with Ivan Yates every Tuesday morning. That was really scary. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's gone off now. I think he's been... Cancelled like four times or something. Has he? Not allowed to <laughs> I think he's a Fianna Fáil advisor now. Yeah, been, yeah. yeah, and he, he still MCs events from time to time. So, <laughs> but no, he's a great broadcaster. I give him that. But yeah, I was I was on with him every like Tuesday morning. I'm still there, so I've had to come up with something every week on that. And I think the fact you could do that just proves that history is a never-ending subject, isn't it? A lot of the approach that I took to that the history slot on the radio, I've kind of taken to the podcasts, which is that quite a lot of them are quite topical. Mm. You know, so when something happens in the news, uh, you know, whenever something's going on, I try and find the historic precedent for it. 
okay. and to make the podcast kind of relevant to what's going on in people's lives now. But yeah, it's been like one of the really nice things about the podcast that's different from, say, the blog back in the day. So you can, you can interview people pretty easily. So as long as there's interesting people to talk to, there'll always be an endless resource of, of, of stuff. But it's like I used to love meeting up with people physically. Mm. So you'd meet them in the middle of town. And I know there's the sound of town and, and people don't mind that, actually. People kind of are willing to listen to the background noise. Now, the ambiance, yeah. Yeah, the ambiance, the ambiance. Uh, and the Zoom isn't quite as nice. People always sound like that little bit underwater, don't they? Mm. But it's also great in the sense that you're able to, you know, you're able to get people uh, who might not live in the city or you, you're able to have, I mean, it's easier for someone who's running around after three or four kids uh, to go and Zoom with you. So it's been, it's been really about learning how to get the, the best interviews, hunting people, chasing people, as you lads know all about. And uh, yeah, keeping topical. I mean, the latest one is with uh, Joe Brady, who's a geographer. And he's just written a book on Dublin since the 70s. And that was really interesting because a lot of the, a lot of the stuff in that book like, we're still living with, you know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of debates that we're still living with and stuff around suburbs and housing and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, as, as long as stuff keeps happening, there'll always be uh, space for historians to go, oh, this happened before. Or, oh, isn't this a little bit like at the dig back? Does, does, it, does it, a kind of a, a weird sync moment here in terms of Dublin in the 70s and, the, as you said, like a lot of the stuff that they were dealing with, 50 years earlier, they were dealing with similar housing issues, building issues, and that which uh, your Brainstorm TV show touched on this week. Um, and now here we are, 100 years on from that, 50 years on from the 70s. And it seems like a lot of the same conversations are probably being had at a lot of similar tables in government buildings. Yes, nuts, nuts. I mean, yeah. when we're talking about the 70s, me and Joe, I thought it was interesting. We touched briefly on uh, Ballymun. Because I know Ballymun was built in the 60s, but Kind of by the 70s, people had a sense that it might have been, mightn't have been going as well as they probably intended. I find it mad, like, talking to Joe, that that was our one attempt at kind of high-rise building on that scale, high-rise housing. Yeah, we do, yeah. It strikes me as something that would really work here. You know, and I'd be more than happy to live in a properly maintained high-rise apartment. Absolutely. I was at a, I was at a gathering recently and a, and, um, a friend's brother uh, returned home from Canada. And we were just chit-chatting about... You know, he's been, he's that might be 10 years now that he's, that he emigrated, but he's now kind of relocated to London for a year or two with his partner. Um, and I just said, you know, would you, would you ever consider coming home? And he said, how could I? I'm, un, I'm unemployable over here. I said, what do you mean? I forgot what he did. And I said, what do you do? And he says, I'm a skyscraper architect. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so he'd never be able to come to Ireland because they're, the building laws don't allow it to get above Liberty Hall. <laughs> Which is wild, isn't it? Well, it's wild when we have a housing crisis. Yeah, and you think, I mean, look, they were talking to Joe, like there were massive issues with Ballymon. I think probably the biggest issue was the lifts. Mm. So what I didn't know is that the company that were brought in for the lifts, they kind of specialised in office lifts. So these were like things that would be used, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five. They were never intended to be like every day, all day, you know, uh, mothers and fathers up and down prams all day so like they structurally the place just wasn't done right and everything that was promised on the ground they promised this great kind of new town that would have everything people need us that it would be able to function on its own but still be near town but then they delivered nothing and really it strikes me that like the failure of Ballymun wasn't the, the flats it was yeah. everything else <laughs> they didn't provide for people's lives they didn't maintain the lifts and the social isolation then like imagine if you had a child living way up in the 
10th, 11th floor of a high rise and the lift was broken. He'd bring the pram down the stairs every day. You'd grow to hate the place pretty quickly too, wouldn't you? Imagine you're a wheelchair user and you're living on the fifth exactly, floor. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's another point. Like, yeah, how were people meant to live in in, in public housing uh, in wheelchairs? Even in the city, smaller schemes. I'm thinking of um, yeah. the 1950s flats in town. Access issues there too. But Ballymun really should have succeeded. And it's mad to me now that that was our one and only attempt at a high-rise public housing. We just gave up on it. Oh. I think Grenfell in London also has influenced how people think about that. But again, it's a very specific failure, you know? Absolutely, yeah. The the the, the failure, the learnings of a, are easily kind of achievable. I mean, you look at cities like Vancouver and Tokyo and, you know, all yeah. these huge high-rise, New York, like Concrete Jungle is, you know, there's, it's, yeah, I just think it's crazy. Like uh, you said, if, if, if you're going to build a, a residential tower, and install a lift that's only uh, it's only workable through office hours, of course it's, you're set up for failure. It's not. I remember my dad telling me like from when he was in the fire brigade that when you had a fire in the Ballymun flats, uh, you had a long, long time before it would even reach the other flats. So you'd, you'd had something like 40, 45 minutes where right. it was well contained within that unit. But then everyone remembers that horrible image of the Grenfell Tower just going yeah. up in seconds, you know. But that's, like, that was... Because people decided they were too ugly to look at. That was like an aesthetic decision that was taken. Oh, we can't look at that public housing. We better make it nicer with lovely cladding and then look what happens. So, yeah, it seems people always point at these exceptional outliers and say, oh, it'll never work. But I think it's really something we need to be thinking about. Because we can't build out. Where, where can you build out? All we can do now is build up. Housing that, crisis. That's it, yeah. Sense. Urban sprawl can only sprawl so far. And yeah. eventually you run out of room, you know. Uh, it can't go any further east. That's for definite because it'll be in the water. So, you know, I mean, and as somebody as somebody living in Leash, you don't want to go too far the other way either, I can tell you. So, I mean, you know, like, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Is Leash a Dublin suburb yet in the in the sense that parts of Kildare and Mead and, and Loud are, you know, it's just Dublin people. Are- yeah, but next to my air code, I put greater Dublin area. So, <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's, it's crazy though, because even at, like, I've said it on this podcast before, like, I mean, the, the, the main reason we moved here is because we could afford to, you know, like it helps that Cubes has, has family here in terms of like that 10 minutes up the road or whatever. But like, mm. we don't have anything in Port Leash as such that was, you know, an anchor for us. We don't have friends here as such. We don't, there was nothing in the community that was like, that's what we're moving to. Because we couldn't Electric afford. Picnic was here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's happening again this year. And if I open my kitchen window, I'll be able to hear who's playing. But at the same time, it's like I'd have much, much, much preferred to have stayed close or ideally in Dublin. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if I wanted to, it'd have to be some fucking modern day tenement house situation <laughs> that it'd have to be in it's just crazy yeah. to me that this is what we're dealing with you know well this is the great debate that like everyone my age is having now where it's like oh do you live in a apartment in dublin city where you have to pay an annual management fee um where does that money go i've I, like and all my all the time i've lived in apartments someone like hoovers the stairs once a month twice a month <laughs> and that's the management fee <laughs> like, yeah. that's right it doesn't got anything else i can see uh do you want to live in an apartment can you raise a family in the park i think you can but not everyone agrees with that. And if you want a garden, which for a lot of people is a big deal having a, a, a garden, that kind of now means leaving Dublin, doesn't it? it does. yeah, do you ever, even, even you saying that, like, have you ever, have you ever been to Barcelona? Yeah. Like the, the residential 
the residential apartments in Barcelona are just amazing. Like, and they have sprawling kind of environments. They have cafes yeah. at the bottom. Mm. You know, I, I remember being there a couple of years ago and thinking, geez, I would love to live here. I'd, I'd, like you're talking about gardens and I know it's not, you know, 10 feet long or whatever, but I mean, someone would live there when you have 10,000 people homeless at the moment. I mean, anyone would live there. Yeah, totally. But the thing about gardens, like, if I look at the window here, we don't have a garden, but I can see Patrick's Cathedral or Patrick's Park. You know that lovely park? Mm. Like, if you live in a city, I suppose you do have parks, so you do have recreational things. You just share them with everyone else. Yeah. It is nice to have your own garden, but that is the trade-off, I suppose, to live in a, to live in a city. But yeah, I mean, if a mortgage is three and a half times your income, you really struggle to see how anyone could be getting a house in Dublin in, in these rates. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's, oh, it's crazy. It's it, the, 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 From a history point of view as well, and, and we touched on this when we talked to Dave McWilliams there a while ago, but it's I, I don't know at what point it became a thing that, that, that Irish people rejected living above the shop yeah. or rejected living above the, the, the cafe or whatever, you know, because th- that was, that, and, and in cities across Europe and cities across yeah. the world, people do that. There's no problem living above a news agent or whatever the case may be, but, but in and, Ireland, and for know, whatever reason. COVID really revealed that. And uh, Frank McDonald's from the Irish Times uh back in the day, he lives in Temple Bar, right? Because in, mm. in the 90s, and everyone was saying, oh, Temple Bar is going to be this great bohemian place and it's going to be full of art galleries and theatres. It, it still kind of is if you scratch hard enough. Yeah. They're just surrounded by shitty bugs. But now Frank kind of put his money where his mouth was and bought, a, bought an apartment in Temple Bar and tried to live there. And he was talking to me on my part about how uh, when COVID hit, he realised walking through Temple Bar that no one lived there. Mm. that all the apartments around him were basically now Airbnbs and, and, and short-term lets. So we really paid for it during COVID and COVID made me think about the city differently because you have to ask, like, is a city for people that are going to live in it for, for seven or eight decades or is it for people that are going to pass through it for three or four days? Exactly. Is it for tourists or is it for people that live exactly. here? And if, if Dublin during COVID felt to me like a city that had, you know, bet entirely on the other horse like. Well, if, uh, going back to Barcelona, they've they've managed to do a happy medium. Do you know what I mean? It's for tourists and also for the locals. I mean yeah. that that strip of residential apartments that I that I experienced, I couldn't tell you how cozy and how welcoming and how like yeah. I suppose I was attracted to you know Barcelona held the Paralympics in ninety two, so they had to upgrade the infrastructure for for people with disabilities. So I was attracted by that romantic kind of living of oh my god i don't have to pre-check everywhere is accessible all the buses are accessible yeah, paths, yeah. everything um and then when you see all these gorgeous apartments i was just like why did this this would be great and like i, I think yeah. i think it could work you know and um, but a lot of people do like to say you know in dublin or in ireland or whatever you can't have nice things because whatever but that's that's down to you know if there's social if there's social deprivation issues that's down to upper management of whoever's doing it not to the people totally and like why does no one live on o'connell street why does no one live on grafton street uh, very few people live on like south william street like all these streets in town should have communities on them Absolutely. Yeah. Don, you know you were saying there when you were picking subjects for when you're picking subjects for hidden histories you're you look at um what's happening now and seeing if there was precedent uh, in decades gone by. Is there anything in terms of the current uh, National Maternity Hospital issue um, that is kind of, it seems to be, 
like I think it's unfathomable, unfathomable that it's rearing its ugly head again in terms of how that's happening. Yeah, that, I mean, that is a subject that's going to run and run. I was only, I'm always kind of trying to think of what the next big anniversaries are, you know, because uh, you need to be ready. People will ring you up and they'll be like, hi, today is the 100th anniversary of this thing. Can you come on the radio and talk about it? You're like, no, because I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so you, I always have like a, a battle plan of what's coming, you know, down the yeah. line. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting is we're, we're kind of fast approaching the, the 50th anniversary of the the death of John Charles McQuaid, the, the Catholic Archbishop who ruled Dublin yeah. with an iron fist for a long time. A really, you know, Irish society was McQuaid's uh, society. That's coming up next year. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about kind of church and state and, and, the, and the relationships there. And it's, it's a really interesting subject. It, uh, in the doll today, like I heard... Uh, Paddock Tobin from, from Aintu said something that I thought was kind of interesting. He was like, yeah, you know, there was horrible issues within the, all of these institutions. But at the same time, he said, look, when we were thanking people for their services to the nation during the pandemic, you know, no one really mentioned the, the priests and nuns who, you know, ad- administered to the dying and buried the dead. And the relationship we have with religious orders is a little bit more complex, I suppose, than just weren't they awful. But... Yeah, it is. I mean, you want a secular society, don't you? I think it's friends of mine who are having kids now, like baptizing them out of no religious faith, but out of a fear that they won't get into a school. That, that's, that, that is a really interesting one as well, because I know a number of people who have taken that very approach. And I've, I've said, I've kind of said, like, like you're not, you don't practice religion. You've said openly you don't believe in it. What, like, yeah. like straight up, I, I don't think I'll get my kid into a school unless... They've had a bit of water splashed on. Was, was that not was that yeah. real? Not a, got, gone with like. I think it's one of those things that on paper doesn't exist, but in practice does. And yeah, yeah. when it comes to things like who like where hospitals are, are located and the ethos of schools, it's we're not talking about a very long time ago here. You know that these weren't debates. Mm. Do you know, like yeah. fifteen years ago, there wouldn't be this debate. So it's strange. It's a it's a society in massive transition. When you think about it. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really messy issue, but it's it's the kind of thing we're going to have a lot more of, I think, in terms of the the, the fabric of. Society. How did yeah, McLeod get such an iron fist over Dublin? I mean, or one of the, one of the one of the tricky things about the past is that we always look back at it and say, "Well, the poor Irish people they were so held down and repressed by the church," but actually, people were really religious. You know, like most people were really really religious. And you see things like in the 50s when there was a lot of uh, communist repression in places like Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Like there were demonstrations in Dublin attended by 70, 80, 90,000 people, even trade unionists who were like out in the streets marching against what they regarded as the red menace and in defense of Catholicism. Like people were really Catholic. And I suppose it, ta- it takes the willing participation of the people, doesn't it? Yeah. For the, for the church to gain the extent of power that they did uh, in Ireland. So, well, I think we're always doing this and we, I do what everyone does it. We kind of look back on people in the past and presume they felt exactly like we do, but like on a whole host of things they didn't. And it was just a different, it was a society where people were willing to give that much. And it's also like the other thing that no one ever really says, but isn't this a failure state as much as anything? Like yeah. what kind of state says, oh, we don't need to worry about the schools or we don't really need to worry about the hospitals because the religious orders to do that. Yeah. You know, like the state in the 20s really consciously is there yeah. anywhere else that does that Donald 
and that's we're talking pre-De Valera, like we're talking mm-hmm. the first government of the state, Cosgrave and, and, and the Coming Gael government, they handed a lot of influence to the church. And for me, I would say that educating the children of a nation is the job of the state. Absolutely. 100%. It's not the, it's not the kind of thing that the state, yeah, but in, yeah, other like other deeply Catholic societies would have had the same thing, but the extent of it here is really extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. That, like a government that a newly elected government minister would travel up to Drumcondra and you know, meet the Archbishop of Dublin. Like, why? You know? Mm. Is it like, and, I, and this is me it's, purely putting on a, a kind of, uh, I'm, I'm very much, I'm, I'm not a religious person at all. And when I think about it, I'm, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> there's a convenience. I'm not saying people weren't religious. Obviously, they were religious. But I'd imagine there was a massive convenience as well. A very young state, no money, trying to get out yeah, there, no. trying to, and then they realize, hang on a second, there's, there's a big old organization up the road that has a big pot of cash and for yeah. a bit of a bit of influence and power, they'll take this problem away for us. Yeah, and then the influence, like it, it shows itself in very weird ways. You look at the early suburbs that they built, like uh, yeah. Crumlin. Crumlin is this massive. Crumlin and Cabra in the thirties are these massive endeavors. And mm. um, in both cases, you have churches before you've got a school built. Yeah, you know, like if I was building a new suburb, I'd be like, okay, we need to build a police station, we need to build shops, we need to build schools, fire station. But the churches were amongst the first things built in those areas. It's really amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's incredible as well because like a lot of churches that that were built in the early days of this day, you walk into them, and even now, like they, they're stunning. To be fair, they are like some oh, of the yeah, stuff yeah, in there. Yeah. You know, the iconography in there, like oh, everyone right. knows the, the the stained glass windows and everything. But like from from top to tail, the detail and the the craftsmanship oh. in them is you know, and obviously it cost a fuck ton of money to do that. So, you know. Yeah. And now you go into them, they're empty, they don't know what to do with them. So yeah. they're talking about taking down some of them. And even ones that came later, so there's a massive one at Finglas. Mm. Like, it's a, it's just amazing. I think it's, I think it's in the 50s. And uh, it's just the congregation isn't there anymore. So they're just these yeah. weird reminders of the past. Isn't there one of them? Is it? Oh, no, it's not Westmoreland Street. I can't remember. I was reading it during the week. Uh, well, during the week yesterday. That, an old church is being basically now turned into shops. They're just going to yeah. And there's a few. Anyways. There's a few in the city. Mostly all Protestant churches turned into different mm. things. Like there's a pub, the church. Yeah. yeah. Nowhere like Arthur Guinness is married, and you can just go in there and have a, a cemetery outside. So that's a weird place, isn't it? Was Arthur Guinness married there? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You just like pop in and have a pint, and Wolf Tom Park is the old cemetery beside it. Like it's that's a, like what do you do with these buildings when they're original purposes past, you know. Mm. Is that another thing then? And I'm completely going on at, at complete sidebar here, but like cemeteries, ce- cemeteries are all re- religious, obviously, in terms of that. But now as we become more and more secular, we get this problem of can you be interred there? And yeah. you know, and now obviously plots the cost of a plot now was nearly you know, a year's rent for what they're doing public. now, though, is uh, w- w- I was talking to a local funeral director last year, or maybe, yeah, whenever it was, lo- recent enough. Mm. And he was saying that the majority of deaths nowadays are cremations uh, and they're kind of humanist cremations. Um, and what, what the, uh, what the graveyards are doing and uh, are now to, to try and make money. What the councils are doing now is they're offering these big walls, and it's a it's like a shelf, and your family's yeah. I've seen a few places in it with now, that. and it, it's a memorial wall of of cremated ashes, so to speak. 
So that's what they're doing to counter that. Um, well, I want to be cremated. Uh, my mom wants to be cremated. My brother wants to be cremated. And I said to my dad, you want to be cremated? He said, I was in the front of you for 30 fucking years. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're not pushing me into them. Pushing Unbelievable. Them. So yeah, we have, to, we have to buy a grave for him. That's a good Go argument. Go on, lads. That's a, yeah, that's a good argument against being cremated. So fair enough. Yeah, go on, man. Last go, man. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose it, maybe uh, is it more environmentally friendly to be uh, to be cremated? Maybe that'll be a swing for people in the future. If we, you know, if we believe Elon, we can upload our consciousness somewhere and we can live on forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in the in the compost bin. Yeah, you, you started <laughs> off mentioning doggy coin, and now we're going to Elon Musk, the uh, the grand master of doggy coin. <laughs> I, I don't, graveyards as well are fascinating places though I mean like the stories that are contained within them are mad but I think a bit of a morbid turn but like yeah even just now and like you were saying Ryan, like the, the use the way we use them the, the evolution of that in itself is interesting and in 30-40 years time historians who are chasing Donald and trying to be the next Donald Fallon I reckon they'll be talking about this in a completely different way like Cemeteries, uh, yeah. I mean, during lockdown, there were one place that people really got to know well because uh, mm. there tends to be one within everyone's kind of five km, you know. Yeah, and you walk around them, and you'd, yeah, you discover really interesting things. And uh, I think one of the mistakes that we make in cemeteries here, and I love Glasnevin Cemetery, and um, my late friend Shane McAmash was a historian up there, and the guides up there now are all, all top class. Some of the best guides in the city that I know are working up there, and. I think when you do tours of cemeteries, they tend to tell the biographies of the people that are buried there. And I've been on tours in cemeteries in, in, in England and France and stuff just as a tourist. And they, you kind of stand at a grave and they, they tend to tell you, oh, this guy lived a great life, here's his life. But what they're very good at doing in Glasnevin instead is they actually talk about the cemetery. Mm. So they talk like who made the headstones and you know the fashion of them and you can kind of see the celtic revival was gone because they're all these beautiful like you know the maid of erin with her wolfhound and celtic stuff and irish script and yeah i think when you're walking through cemeteries the most interesting thing is actually just looking around them themselves not thinking about the people in them but looking at the the different headstones and how they changed over time the graves that have those kind of cages over them because people were scared of body snatchers the, the mortal yeah yeah, yeah. body yeah. thing is crazy the watch hours in glasnevin Mm. On each that's, corner because yeah. of the body like that's mad, isn't it? It's mental. It's absolutely Golden mental. Bridge, Golden Bridge Cemetery in Inchcore, beside Richmond Barracks. That's a great one to walk around. They had uh, guard dogs, Cuban bloodhounds. Wow. They were apparently like really good at stopping the body snatchers. And people were people were robbing the bodies and selling them to doctors yeah. for autopsies, weren't they? They're like Trinity College and the Royal College of Surgeons. Mm. I think when you go to a cemetery like Glasnevin and they're, like, they're really good at it but a lot of the other tourists around the world aren't there's no point standing over someone's grave and being like here's what happened here's everything that happened in this guy's life between 1710 and 18 whatever I think really what you want to know is like what's this place all about and uh, yeah the stories are nuts aren't they like when you the body snatchers and the the, st- the changing style of headstones there's a lovely part in Glasnevin there's a <laughs> Uh, it's a crypt and all the names are familiar you're standing there like I know all these names they're like oh these are the Italian chipper families (laughs) 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 and that makes you think about migration and how these people who a lot of these families came to Dublin around the same time that they're even still that they maintain the closeness that they're even buried beside each other isn't that amazing that that episode of your podcast was brilliant by the way 
the one where you covered it, Italians and chippers and oh yeah, absolutely yeah. Crazy. I'm starving after it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, when you go when when you go away and uh, when you do your city breaks, like with your history had on, do, do you seek out a cemetery tour straight away or? Well, I love going on tours somewhere else because it's like a busman's holiday, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't like going on tours in Dublin because I think people get a little bit freaked out if they know you. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of, they're like, oh shit, you know, they they worry. Uh, <laughs> about what the, like if like you correct them or something. I mean, one, that's incredibly rude. And two, generally, like, no, you wouldn't. And you, you presume uh, you're there to learn yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I love when I'm abroad. I love going on going on on tours, and sometimes they're really cheesy. If you're ever in Edinburgh, like Jesus, the tourist industry in Edinburgh, Edinburgh is a vision of what Dublin will hopefully never become. Right, it's all these awful ghost tours, and yeah, yeah. Luckily, yeah, yeah. luckily for you, Graham, you'll never have to endure them because you're basically moving through the underground city. Thank God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all yeah, like people jumping out at you and stuff like that, you know. But there, yeah. there is there is underground tunnels in Dublin, isn't there? With like, yeah. With, yeah, what's the story are. with that? Would that be ever open for tourism? Uh, there's lots of them, yeah. Uh, there's that new show on about the Liffey on RTE, and I think in the first episode they went into some of those underground tunnels. It's like the puddle mostly flows under Dublin, you know. Yeah. So there is a city below the city, but yeah, the Italian stuff was going back to that. That was such a great story, and those families, so many of them are still here. There was a great poet, Vinnie Caprani. I did an episode on him not too long ago. He was a Dublin Italian uh, blood printer, but he, he wrote a lovely poem about Dublin called The Changes. Mm. I got it up there because it, it captures a lot of what we we're just talking about today. Stroll around your city streets, learn your city's story, try to spy the ancient stones, those granite glints of glory, or the little stones that seem to hold all we once held dear before the carpet bag and fox make them disappear. It's not brilliant. Very good. <laughs> in a city where so much seems to be disappearing at the minute but he, he was a real keeper of the flame of the Italian story he looked like an extra in the Sopranos but he looked like a little Italian gangster and uh, he was full of great great stories about Italian Irish life and uh, it's mad yeah these like they still have a social club and they still you know they still play the great Italian love up in the mountains which is soccer calcio and they're still there it's not a testament that those names are still in every Dublin suburb Oh, unbelievable. But like, yeah, there's no chippers in Italy, is there? No, that's the matter. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's so but then you like the you know the Chinese food that we is not Chinese. Food. It is, yeah, yeah. When the Vietnamese people were escaping from the, the war there, they were called the, the boat people. Mm, and yeah, kind of yeah. like the Ukrainians today, they kind of they, they ended up everywhere and quite a lot of them ended up here. The Vietnamese, yeah, they like made their made their living by selling so-called Chinese foods. Uh, in in suburban Dublin, you know, yeah. and people often remember these like little vans with Vietnamese names selling so-called Chinese food. But it became part of our cuisine. I think our understanding of what's an Italian fish and chips and what's a Chinese takeaway, but really more Irish than they are Chinese or Italian. Absolutely, I think, but I think you know, you know the way the Vietnamese, the the boat people, like they came to Ireland because obviously the war. Was was there any specific reason why an, an influx of Italian people came to Ireland to open shippers? Um, <laughs> they were all living up in Little Ship Street, which is on the back of Dublin Castle. Right. Uh, the, yeah, around the kind of by, uh, between kind of Dublin Castle and Patrick's Cathedral. And they were mostly, those Italians really working class. So they were living in tenements. They were living in pretty rough accommodation. Uh, there were some who had, 
there were these kind of middle class Italian migrants who worked in like church stucco work, you know, guys who work with their hands uh, making stuff. Right. And you see some of that in churches and in, in kind of private homes. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, they were kind of, they were just working class Italians on the move. And, and uh, every major city had a, they called it the Italian colony. And that's something they got really good at, ice cream and uh, fish and chips. And it's funny because when you read the, the newspaper reports back then, like the health and safety authority of the day or whatever, were always in and out of the Italian houses. <laughs> really? Can't, can't sell that ice cream. That's totally unfit for human, habit, for human consumption. But that was the very beginning of it. It was just like Italians living in Tenement, Dublin that were, that were uh, having a go at it. And this guy, Giuseppe Servi, him and his wife have a little handcart on Pierce Street. And they say that like her English was quite bad and his English was quite bad. They just learned how to say one and one. You know, do you want one of these and one of these? Fish and chips. And there's still a place, like it's still parts of Dublin today where people would say, can I have a one on one? Yeah, 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 yeah. They still have chippers now. And it was just these Italians were struggling with English. So it's mad. You know, That's it's, amazing. Yeah, and they're, uh, they're so close-knit. And they're, but if you do anything on, on the Italians in Ireland, you'll always get, your ne- the next day your inbox is just all these great names that you recognise from over the doors of Chippers. Because they're so happy that people uh, commemorate that history and, and talk about them. But it is, it's, uh, uh, they're enshrined in communities around the entire country. And it's something that, like, I'd never really thought about it in, in, in a way. And then listen to that episode or whatever. I'm, I started to think about it. And remember, even like around the border where we're from, you know what I mean? You've got the McCarty's, you've got the Cassonis, you've like, there's so many of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? You, like, yeah. They are, they're in like, the community. If you go to, if you go to London, uh, you get different migrant tastes, different migrant foods. Mm. So in London, you get, if you go to Brixton, like really good Jamaican food, loads of yeah. them. We don't really have that at all. We never had a, a Jamaican migrant community. Uh, uh, what is that? The Nigerian food. There's a lot of that in London. Very little of it. Like there were one or two places in Mercer Street over the years, but uh, not much. So it's hopefully like you know the newer migrant communities. Hopefully, eventually we'll see some of that on offer too. Listen, some of that Ukrainian food, man. My my missus is yeah. Russian, and there's like Ukrainian in their family and all that kind of stuff. So there's a a, a, a kind of a mongrel version of many traditional cuisines. Mm. And I'm telling you, if some of that stuff starts to become popular over here, I'll be all the happier <laughs> for it. Because there's dumplings and soups, and there's so many of those things. And just like, yes, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's the classic thing of just carb, meat, sauce, and you can't go wrong. You can't, can't go wrong. Food like. isn't very like one. It's a very comforting thing. Mm. Two, it's a, it's a sitting down to have a meal with people. It's a, it's a nice routine. And it gives people a great sense of identity. And what I was thought one of the great tragedies of, of the direct provision system was that in most centres, people didn't have the ability to make food. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it would outsource that and you'd have to eat like, you know, like crap, chicken nuggets and chips every day. And these are people who love food and who are great at making food and could probably make very good food for less money than Absolutely. some firm was being served. Absolutely. Being paid well, that's to serve chicken. So yeah, I mean, if you gave people the ability to to share the foods and their native cuisine with people here. They'd love to do it, wouldn't they? That's it. And I think we, we've become quite snobby. I know I'm one of them. I don't eat meat on the bone. I'm, you know, I get constant slagging for not eating chicken wings. I'm the fella that always orders boneless wings when I'm out with friends <laughs> and I get constant abuse over it. But, <laughs> Rightfully so. But that, those communities, they would use cuts of meat that we would look down on, that we put, they're so full of flavour. They're so delicious. Yeah, and totally. like that, 
you know, a big pot of whatever they be making probably costs a tenner to feed a hundred. Whereas we're yeah, sitting yeah. there with our fucking free range organic chicken breasts that cost twelve euro for a pack of three, like you know. <laughs> exactly. In, in my in my in my job as well, like we're we're very multicultural uh, workplace, but we have an international day every year, mm. and all the cuisines that just come together and the offices. The office is transformed into a trans transformed into a farmer's market with international delicacies, and it's just amazing. Like, and like you said, Danny, they're using cut of meat and they're laughing at us. Yeah, yeah. like, and you're eating it with rice, and they're like, "Holy shit, the flavors out of this!" Yeah, you know, it is. it's uh, but that's something brilliant about that. You kind of said there, Donald, that that thing of getting to break bread with people. There's something about that that I think we. We've it's kind of slipped away in Irish culture, I think. It's not as people tend to eat dinner now, like watching the telly, or you know, families don't sit around the table as often as they used to and do that kind of breaking bread and having that ritual. Like, there was a thing called Our Table a couple of years ago, uh, ourtable.ie, and they worked with people in direct provision uh, who made food from their own kind of backgrounds. I remember the hot sauce that they, that they made to get it into places around town. It was absolutely explosive. I love hot sauce. This was real <laughs> hot sauce. It was great. And it was just a great initiative. You know, it gave people a sense of ownership over their own lives and something. I think people love being able to offer something to other people. Mm. You know, you might have been fleeing a war or you, you, you may have come from something very difficult. But to be able to say, this is what we eat, this is what we like, and to share that with Irish people, I think that was a really liberating thing for people. And uh, yeah, food is, it's one of those great things that if, if someone makes a meal, the pride that they take in sharing that, you know, and having people around their table, it's something that, you know, no one should be denied really if they want to do it. It's great. Absolutely. Yeah. If ever you just come over to my gaff, lads, uh, I'll make you chicken for Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> the great, the great <laughs> Irish tradition. <laughs> the great Irish tradition of chicken for Jesus. <laughs> well, I know that's not how it's said. Relax. Yeah. The people out there will go mad at that. Or if you say, jala- <laughs> you say jalapenos. That's not how you say that. All right, all right, relax. Yeah, jalapenos. People are mad. In in uh, Dundrum Shopping Centre, I heard they call that jalapenos. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> Whatever that may be. That, that puts you off. Ask them for them on your sandwich. You know, you know, Moore Street, like, the problem, the problem with Moore Street is Moore Street is designed to fail now. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is everyone is on a short-term lease. Yeah. And does well. Uh, finds it impossible to, to establish any kind of base there. So I don't know if you guys remember the, the Paris Bakery years ago. Mm. Amazing little uh, kind of cafe slash restaurant on Mercer Street doing some of the best sandwiches I've ever had in town. Well, he was saying, like, we're packed out the door every day. We're super busy, but we, we can't get a permanent lease. You know, we don't know if we'll be here in three months. And I, that's a problem, I think. If you're a migrant and you've, you're not here that long and you don't have uh, security, a tenure, you don't know that if you open your you know, your little Nigerian uh, restaurant on Mercery, yeah. you can't guarantee you'll be there in six months. So why would you put anything into it? Why would you invest in it? Exactly. Yeah, fair that, point. What security is that like? Yeah, people say, oh, Mercery, you go down and all the shops look crap and all the signs are ugly. And so, of course they are, because people can't guarantee they're going to be there in six months. So why would they invest in a, a sign painter? You know? Yeah, <laughs> I never knew that, to be honest. That's disgraceful. Yeah, if I had a six-month rolling lease, I wouldn't be plowing money into making the shop look nice either. But... Yeah, the potential like on that street, I think, is is amazing. The potential in Dublin is amazing, and it's just we are we ever going to reach the potential? Well, like the potential, like in, when I was in Berlin there last September, there was a street called uh, Kantstrasse, 
and you walk down Kanzstrasse, every kind of migrant food you could ever want is there. Like literally everything you could if you could ever imagine. I wonder, like funny, but back in the DDR, back in East Germany, mm. uh, they had fraternal relations, you know, with the with the Vietnamese people, and it meant a lot of Vietnamese people. One of the only Western countries they could go to was uh, East Germany. You know, one communist society to another. So there were loads of Vietnamese people. So Vietnamese food's a real part of life there. Uh, but just incredible tops top stand of Vietnamese food. And I was thinking, like, why, is there, why isn't there a Kantstrasse in Dublin? Why isn't there a street in Dublin where you can get good quality uh, migrant food? Parnell Street, kind of, but it suffers from the same problem that, you know, the, 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 the future of it is so uncertain. Yeah. And people yeah. say, oh, should, we, should Parnell Street be Chinatown? I'm like, actually, if you go down it, it's way more diverse than that. It definitely is. Yeah. I think just kimchi, which is Korean. Yeah. Korean food has become... Sensational, Sen- yeah, well, yeah, and it's but it, there's more and more of it available popping up now. There's places that do all the kind of the the Korean chicken and just the spices and everything, and like you were saying, like down the hot sauce and whatever. The different sauces of like in that, some of those Asian fuels. Oh my God, I'm lepping. I'm lepping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we don't have the culture of the kind of street food here that they have in Berlin or in New York City, where mm. it's literally a window, you know, when you order food and. and that's a good affordable business model for people. Yeah, yeah we, we see we saw the emergence of food trucks during the pandemic, but I think oh. they, they're they're kind of disappearing though with as as soon as we emerge out of it. Yeah, they, they depended on the boredom of people, didn't they? Yeah. But that's it, it did become a thing because there was nowhere open and it became a thing. I remember myself at cubes a couple of times when geez, look, there's one there that a load of people are at the science brand. Come on, we go for a drive. And that's what we yeah, do. Yeah, we go and whatever yeah. this one is parked up, we'd go and try it. Kawagi bites was one of my favorites. Bites by Quangy, yeah, that was one. That's real, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the um, chicken one at the Walkerstown roundabout was great. Uh, uh cluck cluck. Yeah. That's worth risking your life on the Walkerstown roundabout for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I tell you, the, the one that was the unsung hero there was at the back of Cluckless. So you'd have to go back to the roundabout, risk your life, but go up the other exit. There was a little dumpling place up there, and it was fucking unreal. I don't know if it's still there or not. I'm sure somebody will, will tell us. Um, I can't believe we're, we're getting nostalgic for the food trucks of the COVID 19. Yeah, yeah, I tell you, wait till 2030, <laughs> lads. All we'll be wishing for is an old Korean chicken burger from a van and a few fucking bits of dumplings from some other van. It's like the driving through the Champs Elysees, isn't it? Going to walk and sound. <laughs> <laughs> if you rent a car in Paris and you have insurance on it, the insurance doesn't count in many cases at the Champs Elysees. Yeah. Like it's considered so bad and so dangerous that it's no man's land. You know, when it's you're mad, you're and the walk and sound roundabout, if you get stuck on that thing, it's, it's not nice. I've never been stuck in in rush hour, thank God. Oh God! It's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's a it's a type of chaos. I try. I'd, I'd rather take ten minutes longer and avoid. <laughs> to be honest with you, like, but uh, some, sometimes all all roads lead through walking sound roundabout. The great story I heard from I think someone told me this in the queue for Cluck. You know, Rich mm. they're saying about this guy, uh, Colin. I think Colin was it. Was he actually Chicken Colin? Or was his nickname? I had to look that up. I thought this guy was having me on. Trying to see if he could get me to tell an outrageous lie in the podcast. But it was actually a man who refused to give up his house when they were constructing the walking sound roundabout. And for years, he was in the middle of it. His house was still there. What? Jesus. It was kind of like the house and up, you know? Yeah. Hopefully, I wouldn't sell his house. Is there any pictures of it? Yeah, there is one. There actually is one. I'll see if I can. Yeah, I'll pop it in the chat if I can find it. But he, he just fought on and refused to go. That's amazing. amazing. Like, why would you want to wake up to that every morning? But I suppose it was a. Uh, 
there are some people who are so stubborn though. You know, they'll, they'll massively inconvenience themselves for this outrageous moral <laughs> victory that intruders just hurting themselves like. Michael Chicken Cullen. <laughs> Nickname Chicken because he has to <laughs> run across five lanes. Did he open up a food truck? Chicken Cullen lived in a house with his sister Dolly that was located where the infamous roundabout now sits. He refused to sell his house to the Dublin Corporation in 1950, so they built the roundabout around the house. One night in 1971, the 86-year-old Cullen quietly moved to a house that had been built for him across the road, ending a 21-year dispute with the corporation. Isn't that brilliant? That is amazing. amazing. (laughs) That is. And see, it's that. It's the people, isn't it? It's the people that make Dublin. Yeah. Chicken Cullen is a man who now will go down in my memory as a legend. Maybe Cluck was a form of commemoration for Chicken Cullen. Who knows? But yeah, that was those, those, those are mad times when you think back on them now and just remember when 2km became 5km and it felt like the world just opened up to you. Stop, yeah. Mental, isn't it? Going into town and being like, this city will never be the same again. It was so surreal when you were yeah. wondering how much of it would... I remember, you remember the Christmas like there was, there was Paddy's Day decorations. It was Paddy's Day, like Paddy's Day decorations up like yeah, twenty months later, and things in town. It was just surreal. It was absolutely. No, it, was, it was a bizarre, and I'm not saying this to to to, to knock guards. They were in an impossible position in many ways. But like that, you know, two km was in. You're going to the shops. And you're being stopped by a guard, and he's asking you where are you going. And yeah, says, hey, yeah, so yeah. Do, do you have to go to buy bread and pasta, or you know? And you're like, yeah, yeah I do, man. Yeah, like. Uh, <laughs> You know, but like, and it, I'm not. I'm not saying that to knock them. I get it. They, you know, but just the mere fact that we were being asked that kind of stuff. Well, I, I know a guard, and I know for a fact he hated asking the question. I'd say so. And in fair, and I he, never he had. Was at a checkpoint one night, and Tony Hulhans rocks up. Where do you go? Where are you going, Tony? God, the God. Tony, an illegal rave down the beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, we all remember the uh, that amazing piece of. Uh, Cinema, I think one of the greatest things I've ever seen in the movie is Killian Murphy in the opening minutes of 28 Days Later. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. deserted London. You know, that, that, that was like you going to Grogan's during the, the snow that time <laughs> <laughs> by trekking the snow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was just surreal, wasn't it? Walking around town, you're like, Jesus, would this place ever be the same again? It was just absolutely phenomenally strange but it's funny how quick things came back to some extent you know but it was it was uh, yeah it was mad but the the history of pubs were affected by it because a lot of them were decimated yeah and that was the funny thing I suppose that like the likes of Grogan's and the Palace and the pubs that were on on the telly a lot like they were they were always going to bounce back and bounce back fine but yeah apparently in, in rural Ireland you really see it now and even yeah. when we were filming Brainstorm, we did quite a lot of traveling into different places because we didn't want it to be like, here's a lot of academics who live in Dublin. We wanted it to be like, yeah. this is this is Irish academia across the country. So we went through, like, we were in Ballinrobe and Mayo. We are in, like, little rural towns and even rural cities. Like, forget, like, once you get out of Dublin, you can actually see the impact of the pandemic very clearly. Like, there's a lot of small, medium businesses just gone around the country. Yeah, even down here, you know, you walk down Main Street in Port Leash and you do, you see it, you see the scars of the pandemic there. And it's, um, look, I I think we're all, we're all in a better place now, but I think there are some people who will, who will carry that weight with them for a long time. Like, yeah, absolutely. And Donald, you're talking about brainstorm there. Tell us a bit about that before we let you go. 
Yeah, so Brainstorm is this like section of the RT website where they uh, academics kind of write about what's going on in the world and try and respond to the world and what's happening in it. And it's not like clickbait. It's not like 10 things you need to know about Vladimir Putin or, you know. I hate clickbait. Clickbait drives me up the wall. You won't believe what Vladimir Putin named his dog. You won't won't believe what happened next. Uh, But it's a website, I suppose, that's... So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open it up and tell you exactly what's on it now. And that'll give you a sense of what it's all about. Amazing. Well, you're doing that, we'll say it. it is, the episodes are available on RTE Player. Yeah, so at the moment, like the newest articles on it, Walk This Way, Why Irish Cities Are Giving Way to Pedestrians. Because, you know, Cable Street's just been pedestrianised. Yeah, yeah. It's a piece on why are we doing that? How has that worked around the world? Does it work? Uh, What's behind the crash in cryptocurrencies? Uh, You know, Finland and Sweden, their NATO membership, what will that mean for Europe? So it's all about people who are working in these various things, trying to explain or give a sense or give an opinion on what's happening in the world. Mm. Really nice idea, and it was it was a kind of bold idea for TV because that stuff's very topical, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you had to move really quick. So that show was made really recently. In fact, like I was doing a voiceover for one of them yesterday. Right. That's like going out next week. So it was really like, okay, we have to make this show quick. That the yeah. stuff is still fresh. It was really nice. Some of it's like the, there's a piece in it that will just boil your blood, uh, boil your piss, and yeah, you, you'll want to jump out the window. It's about postcodes and what they mean for property prices. That's on it next week. Oh, oh that, yeah, that will. That infuriates. Yeah. And did you enjoy making it? Yeah. Yeah, except when the stuff annoyed me like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We met up in a house in uh, Terenure. I would say Kimmage, but definitely Terenure. <laughs> You know that song, Three Lovely Lassies from Kimmage? There are three yeah. lovely lassies from Kimmage. I was thinking like, God, if, they, if the estate agents had their way, it'd be three lovely lassies from Terra Europe. But yeah. we're in this house, and it, had sold, it was a gorgeous house. It was a really, really nice house, but it was in Kimmage. But it had sold as it being in Terra Europe. I'm going to talk about what does that mean? You know, What does it mean when you move a house from one postcode to another? And I thought air codes would have solved this. Mm. But actually, people registered their own air codes. So a lot of people have like, Really? really strange air codes yeah like but this Dublin 6 versus Dublin 12 uh, Dublin 8 into Dublin 10 all this stuff across the city it's fascinating isn't it it is it's mad and it's uh, maths on it it was, fucking, it was infuriating it is it's uh, and, and Kieran Mulqueen the man behind the crazy house prices uh, social media account and we've had him on the podcast a couple of times he's brilliant yeah. at calling those things out I do love when he calls out an estate agent for that exact kind of shithousery where he's like this yeah this is it on google maps and it clearly is kimmage it like it's you know there was, there was a house in the ranch uh one of my recent episodes was about thomas kinsella a great poet he was from the ranch <laughs> and the ranch is like when you come under the bridge out of intracore going into ballyfermot the ranch is just there and it's dublin 10 now arguably it actually is intracore but it, it, it's in this no man's land of ballyfermot intracore it predates ballyfermot as a suburb so I would say it's debatable where it is. It's kind of no man's land. It's just a ranch. It's between Valley Fairman and Chicago, but it's Dublin 10. Mm. And there was a, a house on Daft that he sold as Dublin 8. But in the picture of the house, on the fucking house, was a street sign that said Dublin 10. <laughs> so something's in Dublin 8. It's like, it's like an Orwellian lie. It's like, yeah, I know there's a picture in the ad that says Dublin 10, but we're going to say mm. it's Dublin 8 anyway. Yeah. And that's just mad to me. And like, I don't care if a house is in Dublin 8 or 10. I care about where it is in terms of the distance from things and if that's convenient to me. 
But it's mad to me that there's so much of it on that now. And, and to meet these statisticians and, and for them to explain it, and they've got the hard data and they've looked at like exact same houses. Sometimes houses built at the same time by the same architect. And they sell for madly different prices because of a postcode. It's just like, it's just mad. It's crazy, right? man. Like, it's absolutely man. crazy. There's no, there's no talk of National Treasure coming back. Yeah, the lads who made National Treasures, uh, fair play to them, I'm delighted for them. They, they sold the rights for it in loads of different countries. Brilliant. So well, we were saying that why would that not work anywhere else? It would work anywhere else. And they've done it, I think, uh, Sweden, I think, have done it. And a couple of different countries, like several different countries have done it. It was a great idea, wasn't it? And when it went out on telly, like, if anyone who didn't see it, it was basically a show where we asked people to bring along artifacts they thought were important in telling the story of Ireland, that we talked about them, and we didn't value them. Mm. So, like, yeah, if you want to value things, like, go on the Antiques Roadshow, or, you know, go on, go, on, go on eBay and see what it's worth. We were like, what's it worth as a story? What's it worth emotionally? And then the Irish Times reviewed it, and they called it the Anti-Capitalist Antiques Roadshow. I was like, thanks, that's great. <laughs> yeah. That's but cool. other, people were, other people were angry. Like, some of the reviews were like, I don't know what that stuff was worth. I was like, that was the point. But is there no is there no talk of it coming back? No, I would have loved to bring that back. I thought it would have been great. As we were saying before, I would have loved to bring it to, to Liverpool. I would have loved to bring it to uh, Manchester, to London, to do, to do a yeah. British version of Irish. I can't believe it's not being commissioned. I loved it. And yeah, that was just mad. That was that was great. If, if they're after selling the rights to it worldwide, of course there's an appetite for it. Do it again. Do it yeah. again. Absolutely. Yeah. Never say never, lads. It was great, and you know what? It, it was a chance to use that archive. Like the archive is so rich. Uh, and people love archive, don't they? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Everything's more romantic than black and white, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Old archive footage and photos, and like your man, oh. I don't know if you follow him on social media, Rob Cross. It's amazing. Rob. Yeah, Rob wow. was in Brainstorm. So Rob is in Brainstorm next week. He's the first item. Oh, very good. Uh, we met up and he was kind of talking through the, the process of how he does what he does. Amazing guy, Rob. I bought his book for Christmas, and my God, it's just yeah. amazing. And you know what's cool about Rob? Like, he. He prints the black and white original beside it. Yeah, mm. yeah. So people get a bee in their bonnet and say, oh, you're changing the past and you're vandalizing history and da, da, da. Rob would say, no, I'm just giving, I find this entertaining. I'm giving my interpretation of the past. Yeah. People enjoy it. I'm not saying that's the definitive image because it isn't. The black and white image is the historical source. Shouldn't need to explain yeah, that though, should he? Yeah, but people are just like, people just like to nag on things that are popular sometimes. That's and I think that's what that was about. But it was uh, the way he gives you the original. I think that's great. Because, yeah, sometimes people get it wrong. You know, they get the chart colors wrong or whatever. But like Rob was telling me, he goes on Google Street View and he actually looks at bricks. Like, so if he, if he has like a, like, say it's like Rap Mines, 1890. You know, it's a very good chance that a lot of what's in that picture is still there. Places that haven't changed all that much. And you get the Street View up today and you get a sense of the colors. That's the level of research that he does. So he's That's yeah, Rob does every success. Uh, I think he's like the thing about those colorization images, they they get people interested in history, and that's always a good thing, isn't it? Big time, absolutely, absolutely. brilliant. Um, Donald, but before we let you go, there, there's one thing uh, I want to talk to you about, and and as you are a social historian, and you know we've often talked about things when we had you on that that divided Irish society and whatever. Um, and the Irish Civil War, now, not the one that's marking the centenary this year, but the one that's two decades old this year, Keane and McCarthy. 20, 20, <laughs> years, is, isn't it? 20 years in Saipan. And wow. 
it's still to this day is there's still mates of mine that we can't talk about it because we'll kill each other. You know? Um not amazing. Yeah. 20th anniversary. And it's it's soon it's around the corner. It has to be around the yeah, corner. It's around only a couple corner, of weeks. Yeah. Um, um, you know what? I remember the television being wheeled into the school uh gym to watch those games. Yeah. Yeah. The euphoria, and that was their first kind of grace. So one of my earliest memories as a child is painting curbstones in Valley Vermont yeah. in '94. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, at the crap murals that went up all over Dublin. <laughs> I think there might be like there's apparently remnants of some of them still around the country. No These, way. Like, dodgy USA '94 murals. Uh, but I, I remember that. Yeah, I remember like the curbs being painted. But it's too young to have any sense of it. One of the five. But 2002, Jesus, that's so living, isn't it? In your memory, in your memory, like if there were school kids, awful. Time. I'll never forget the RTE coverage. They they really used that song, that feeder song. Uh, all it? by myself was that the song? Yeah, yeah. Do 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 do. Oh yeah, yeah. All by myself. Yeah. Yeah. He's always memory and. Recently, yeah, we were we were out in the lash and we were talking about the World Cup and someone put that on Spotify. I was like, yeah, that's that's Robbie Keane doing the cartwheel. That's the yeah, most yeah. shot into the camera. That's we didn't do love doing that. Too. Oh, it was incredible. The memory of that time. But at the time, I think as kids, we all thought Keane was the comic book villain, you know? Yeah. But in retrospect, after things like champagne football, I mean, you have a better understanding of how Irish football is dysfunctional. Sometimes, not by accident. Uh, yeah, you 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 sympathise more and more with Keane. But Keane, Keane is such an uh, abrasive is the wrong word. He's such a most people are not as honest as Keane is, and he doesn't do the dance around civility that most people do, where you you don't really say what you mean. You try and say what you mean, but in something softer. Just as it means. <laughs> That's it, and I think that, and it, it's amazing because he, he captured that himself in terms of his no nonsense style. And then when it came to someone like Noel Quinn, he who he christened Mother Teresa, you know, who because Noel was always trying to appease and he was always trying to find that nice way of putting something across. And Keane had no time for it, you know, and Mother Teresa, Noel Quinn. So, but uh, yeah, oh, there's a there's a website called uh, soccer Ireland.com. Hmm. Seriously, ugly website. It's kind of like you know. Remember the days of MS Paint and everything. It's it's yeah, but it's a, a very important website, and they have the entire interview that King gave to the the Irish Times. Yeah, in two thousand two. Was it the Tom Humphreys? It was Tom Humphreys. Yeah, yeah. Don't mention the war, but like yeah, uh, Roy's points in that are just absolutely amazing, and the whole thing is up there uh, to read in full. What what an amazing! That's hard to believe. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, you have to do a podcast on it. That's really frightening, isn't it? It is. It, that's yeah, and I think it's it's one of them things that uh, like it's so fresh in our memories, and yet the twentieth anniversary has kind of crept up on us in a way, you know. Yeah. And uh, but it's just when I was when I was thinking about things to chat about, I was like, you know what? Merrow definitely has an opinion on. You haven't really talked about it over the years and whatever, but it's like there's so much in this, and when you think about, I can remember TV clips of people talking about like husbands and wives not talking to each other brothers and fathers and sisters like families literally at the kitchen table being like no no he he's in the keen camp i don't have nothing to do with him you know <laughs> like don't don't feel appearing on tv wearing a cameroon toy or something wasn't he, he was wearing the yeah, toy that was yeah. called a cameroon like just 
Dunphy went to, Dunphy was a was a pleb back then, like as well. Mm. He would have been, yeah. Um, but you know, Dunphy was like the national villain when he was yeah, criticizing like, uh, like Jack Charlton during the '94 World Cup. And the thing I find amazing about about that was you could, like, you could buy T-shirts making fun of Dunphy on the O'Connell Bridge, like the day after. Yeah. He Stupid. Like, who was who was running that operation? Yeah, what, what printing? What printing? Yeah. printing where are they now? Don't be recovered from all that. I mean, his, he he remained the national figure. I wouldn't say icon, but he remained a national figure. The key definitely in the conversation. Like he, he got a show. The last word was was Damon Dunphy. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. It's so long since I read that interview, but I pulled it up there. One of the last questions is amazing. You hate that lovable Irish thing, don't you? And Keno says, I suppose so. I accept it. I'm as Irish as anybody, but this has been going on for years. Training facilities, travel arrangements. It's easy to pass the book. you got to prepare properly, though. It's hard enough as it is. If I open my mouth every time there's something wrong, I need my own newspaper. Not brilliant. Just Jesus. such a Roy King thing to say. But he was he was vindicated in the Genesis report as well. Oh, he was totally vindicated in the end, wasn't he? Mm, totally yeah. vindicated in the end. But I suppose it was a real lesson in, in, um, in how figures are viewed based on how they talk or how they how how forward they are you know yeah. Keenan was just regarded as very forward mm. absolutely man absolutely um, Don, Don, do you ever think you'll uh, do a live show with the podcast I'd love to yeah that'd be great uh, there's a podcast I really like and you lads probably like it too uh, Talking Bollocks oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 I listen to that a bit and they're doing one in Vicar Street and I was thinking yeah that could work you know it's, it's nice to do to do live shows you put a lot of faith in a lot of things going right on the night, don't you? That you can't control. God bless yeah. you. Well, that's it. You would be great in the Sugar Club and have a few historians in talking. Yeah, you got to think about who you, who you invite. Yeah, but it'll be, it'll be good, wouldn't it? It'd be yeah. nice. It'd be nice. And yeah, getting everything back offline now is just because we live in a weird COVID's not gone. Like, you know, it's still mm. ticking away there. And you do have to cancel things sometimes at the last minute. And yeah. You're nearly shocked now when someone texts you and says, I've COVID. You're like, oh, that thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like you're a hipster. Like, oh, that was so two years ago. But yeah, like it's, <laughs> it's still part of our lives. And yeah, I think we need to just get back to full-time normality and yeah, doing live doing live pods is a good way to do that, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Well, if you do decide to do one, tickets one and two are sold right here, my friend. Um, <laughs> but Donald, as always, man, it's, it's, uh, it's great catching up. It's like, bam, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, I mean, yeah, look, Look, Paul Howard would do it. He wrote a book, Gaffer's yeah. brilliant book on it, you know. And I'm sure he, uh, there'd be plenty of other sports uh, sports brands out there that'd be more than willing to. Because I think there's, there'd be a lot of it anyway. I'd say there's going to be peace in Sunday papers and everything now over the next couple of weeks. That they've already started. Have they already started? Yeah, they? yeah. Like it's going to be uh, commemorative badges and. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. where you come in. Are you are you doing yeah. the shop again? No, uh, this awful thing happened called hyperinflation. You may have noticed it. Right. It's everything costs a fortune now. Yeah. Uh, except the bus, which is now cheaper, which is lovely. Yeah. But uh, yeah, everything everything else has cost an absolute bomb now, and just yeah, the cost of like. I love that shop. A shirt or a badge is just so mad now that it's even postage has gone up, but that's not that's not. That's what the posties fault, but every the cost of everything is through the roof. So yeah, it just became more and more stressful and, and less and less rewarding. But I'd love to go back and do the odd things. It was great fun. The most frustrating love... part about that website was going onto it and seeing sold out. I love doing weird little things that no one else would make. You know, like a commemorative Rick's Burgers jumper. Like who else? Would make? <laughs> <laughs> I've never had a Rick's Burger. Did you not? Oh. 
Oh, God. It was the original Smash Burger, which is now very much on trend. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were the, the origin of the Dublin Smash Burger. But it's so weird again. Like, if you, if you walk around town, there's a lot of stuff like that gone, isn't there? Mm. I haven't been in town at an hour where you'd crave that kind of food after a couple of uh, a couple of creamy points or whatever. But I like yeah, Rick's, Charlie's, Pinhead, all those kind of places. Where I, I assume Charlie's and Pinhead Pizza are still going strong, at least. Yeah. yeah. Zaytoon is up there. Zaytoon, oh my God. Yeah. One of the best kebabs in the world, I think. I love Zaytoon. Oh, fucking yeah. bring any kebab purist there, you know, I think it's, it can hold I, its own. Yeah. It can. I, I would give... Me yeah. the arm for the right now. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, give me. been a WhatsApp group where fellas reviewed kebabs. Um, yeah, the Department <laughs> of Health would shut it down. If they knew, <laughs> but uh, the the consensus in the group was right that the best kebab in Dublin was passion for food. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. yeah passion for food is very good. Yeah. Sensational. It's about two minutes somewhere I'm sitting at a minute, so that's yeah, that's a thought that's crossed my mind there. Yeah. But it's unbelievable, and those guys are Kurdish, and. Uh, mm. There's always a little difference, you know, depending on where, where the people in the kebab shop are from. They do really, really nice uh, kind of desserts as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't know they were Kurdish. Clava, the clava, you know, gorgeous. Baklava, oh, baklava. Yeah. Man, yeah. They do really stuff. nice stuff there. So, oh, yeah, that's always, that's always tempting me on the walk home. That's uh, too too close for comfort. Treat, treat yourself, man. Treat yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, Donald, as always, man, it has been a pleasure and continued success with Three Castles Bornan. Um, and yeah, look, if, if if National Treasure gets brought back, even better again. And Brainstorm, congrats on that as well. It's been great. Uh, it's history. been great watching you on telly. Uh, it's great. Yeah, I really, I really, it's very meta, isn't it? Like, we don't have a television here. It's not that we're making some great political points with television. I'll get one eventually. <laughs> <laughs> television, man, it's evil. It's like there's... I've had space to to store one or you know the time to buy one, but uh, when I was watching that at my folks' house, it shouldn't work as well as it does. Pe- watching people on telly, watching people on telly, yeah, it's tuning them for the brain in the best what possible way. What an idea! It's great. But it's, we all we all <laughs> react, you know, and then you react to the people reacting. It's it's nice. It. Um, and thank you, by the way, for teaching me the history of the Schlitter. I didn't oh, know I need. I didn't know I needed to know that information, but I felt okay. all the better. For what an amazing man! Oh, man. unbelievable! Like the, what a great. Act. There's a man who needs a podcast. What a great accent! Come on, <laughs> yeah. the second generation, the second generation Irish in England. They all speak those kind of lovely notes. Yeah, uh, I just thought it was great. Yeah, the slitter, as he said, the yeah. slitter. Exactly. Yeah. It was really a brain box uh, stuff I never knew. Like why? Uh, not only that the slitter is yellow, but they physically like scan the slitter now. With mobile phones to make sure it's an official one before a match. Ah, that is mad. Technology, yeah, man. Because it was a totally unregulated thing, so teams had their own favourite slitters, and depending on the weight of them, the distance they could travel was totally different, and score lines were all over the place with the inconsistency it's, in the balls. So, yeah, standardised slitter, classic brainstorm it's idea. The, it's the Irish, uh, and we were doing it long before Tom Brady and the Flategate in the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> That got all the headlines. Meanwhile, yeah. inter-county Horland was up to all kinds of shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant, lads. Thanks again for today. Really enjoyed that. Donald, it's been a pleasure, Dublin. man. No, no, Fallon. Thank you so much, as always. <laughs> no doubt there'll be lots of history to talk about next time. Great to catch up with Donald Fallon once again. Uh, always, always a pleasure. And again, like that, like we, we talked to him for... 
oh, well over an hour there and we could have kept talking and kept talking, kept talking, kept talking. I love the sound of his voice. I've always said that. Yeah, is uh, Three Castles Born and is the podcast. And if you haven't checked it out, check it out because you'll, you'll find it's brilliant. The, the episodes are, you know, 30 minutes long thereabouts. They're just a nice length. And They're you'll perfect. Find, you'll find yourself, once you listen to one, it flows into another and another and just... He's uh, he is a treasure, is Dono, and uh, yeah, wish him nothing but the best. Uh, that's it for this week. Um, I'm ripping the headphones off myself here. Sorry, Mero. Of um, no, sorry, no, I do. I want to give a, a quick plug to something. I should have done this at the start of it. Sorry, man. Right, okay. there are two two Burla lads, local enough, who are rowing across the Atlantic. What Kev and Rob's Atlantic Row on Instagram? If you just go Kev and Rob's Atlantic Row, you're all on board, you'll find them. Rob Collins and Kev O'Farrell, and they're they're nearly there. They're nearly they're, they they've been doing updates and whatever. Their boat has solar power, which is nearly uh, gone on them. So they're they're down to the bare bones, but but they're, they've nearly made across the Atlantic. Well worth looking at their journey. They're doing fundraising as well, um, which is brilliant. All for a great cause. It's Muscle Dystrophy Ireland. Pop on over, give them a, a quick look, and support them if you can. An amazing endeavor. So somewhere in South America is where they'll be landing. That's where they'll be making sure. Unreal. Yeah, crazy. So fair play to the two lads. And uh, if you can, check it out on Instagram and uh, give them a follow. And if you can, throw them a few quid for their incredible achievement too. I'm sure when they make land, it'll be big news. I'm sure people will be hearing about it all over the place, especially around the border. So yeah, fair play to Kevin Rob. Well done. Um, Mero, that's it for this week. If people want to listen to the previous episode of the podcast, how can they do it? They can, go, they can go to WTSpod.com and, and uh, stream it, or they can go to any podcast provider, uh, such as Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, um, and just search WTS Pod anywhere and everywhere you can get a podcast. He's at Dan Joe Murray on Twitter. I'm at Merrigan Mania on Twitter. And until next time, you're always full hearts can't lose.